0: Hey, good morning, everybody. All right, daylight savings time. Still got some of you. All right, gotcha. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, so we're going to spend the majority of our time uh, this morning. Um, and while you're finding uh, chapter 15, uh, it's towards the back if you're new to your Bible, um, I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, uh, thanks so much for uh, time that you Um, Just allow us to be together. There's not one of us in here that's here by accident or coincidence. Um, We got up this morning. um, We got dressed, uh, knew it was raining, uh, made the intentional step to walk out the door to be here, and uh, it's not by accident. And so you have a word for each of us. So help us not to waste it. Um, I'm going to pray that you help me not to waste it by uh, giving my own opinion. I just want to speak clearly from you. So Holy Spirit, I'm available. Speak through me. And we don't want to waste it as a group. We want um, to allow you to move uh, amongst us. And so I pray that you would set aside distractions, uh, the things uh, that would easily um, take our mind away this morning, move those aside, and Holy Spirit, fight the enemy of distraction for um, my my friends in the room this morning. Uh, And let us leave here with whatever it is that you uh, brought us here to hear from you. I ask in Jesus' name now, amen. Uh, This past week, uh, as as uh, a lot of you know, uh, if you were here last week, Ashley was uh, in the hospital. She had to have a surgery um, that she, her body uh, desperately needed. Uh, before she went into surgery, she lost a lot of blood, and uh, while she was in surgery, she lost a lot more uh, blood. And uh, while we were in the hospital, uh, the word cancer uh, was, was thrown out. And that's not ever been a word that's been thrown out in, in the Consideration of our family. Like we've dealt with it with, with extended uh, friends and, and whatnot, but not really in our house. And so that we've not dealt with that in the context of we we're personally walking through that. And so when the doctor just threw that out there, like it was kind of in jest, we didn't really know how to handle that at first. I want to preface it by saying um, that the Lord gave us just this uh, fantastic um, peace while, we were, in the, while we we're in the hospital, but at the same time, um, we, were, we were sitting there in, in the hospital, you know kind of laying in the bed and, and I would be lying if I said that my mind didn 't drift off and, and run down the the trails and go into the weeds of the what ifs and the worst case scenarios, and began to run along the the path of fear, um, fear of the unknown, um, fear of doing life alone, uh, fear of raising my kids our our kids uh, by myself, and I, I thought to myself, like, Lord, like, this is legit thought, right? It's like, uh, they need her way more than they need me. <laughs> like, she is so much better at life and everything else than me. So, like, if we could maybe switch, that, that sort of thing. Um, but just running through all those thoughts, uh, the fears of the unknown began uh, to set in, and the fear of death, and all that stuff uh, began to creep in. And, and I just thought about the reality that we don't like to think about death. We don't like to talk about death. Um, we don't like to think about being in pain or like we don't want to be in pain or, or think about being in pain. And that it's usually a curveball that gets thrown at us when we're even having to contemplate any of that kind of stuff. And, and so talking about and thinking about death and fear is just so far usually not on our radar. But if we're not careful, the scenarios that we find ourselves in and the things that we feel that are just so crushing, that would be so crushing to our soul like I felt this past week, that it can leave us in this place of feeling hopeless, can leave us in a place of feeling despair, almost to the point that we feel like we can come out from underneath of that weight and that, and that pressure those scenarios can be so crushing. But I want you to know there's a confidence and a a hope that Paul gives us in in the midst of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We've been in the series called Messy Masterpiece for a while, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wraps our mind around this idea of eternity. He wraps our mind around the idea of the resurrection. He leads us into places that we don't normally think about, and it is applied in our context in, in the idea of fear and pain and the things that we walk through okay and so if we were to take 1 Corinthians 15 and we were to rip it out of the of the or rip it out of the scriptures i think what would happen is we would be left without hope we would be left in a place feeling like life is completely meaningless and that we're just here and we're gone and we're a vapor and nothing ever matters okay but if we leave Chapter 15, within its context, we leave it in the scriptures, I think it can actually do some good in our lives as we look at painful situations, as we look at things that are like face-to-face, we look at pain and death and heartache and, and things that feel so crushing to us, that we can look at those things face-to-face and not be overwhelmed by fear, but actually look at it and have hope. Hope that there is eternity, hope that there is a resurrection, hope that is bigger than the pain that we end up feeling. And so with that, what I want to do is, is I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 15. But before we get there, guys, I don't want this just to be a lecture, okay? Like, it's easy just to sit here, Anthony's talking, and then we can drift off and do our thing or, or whatnot. Like, it's so easy to just to drift and there's a guy talking. But what I want you to do, like, if you have a pencil or you have a, a pen and some paper, I want you to write down some things. It doesn't have to be anything that I say. But what I want you to do is I want you to be attentive to what the Holy Spirit is speaking into your life this morning. Because again, you didn't come here by accident. Like you were here because God wants you to be here and he has something that he needed you to pause on something else in order to hear from him. And so I want you to write down whether it's something in the the text that we read that you see coming up over and over again, if it's something that just stands off of the page to you a little bit differently than you've read it before, Because it might be that thing that later on in your quiet time this week that the Holy Spirit just brings you back to, the thing that you pray back over and over and over again is the exact thing that he wanted you to take away from this morning, or the thing that he needed you to hear in this week, or the thing that he needed you to process through in whatever it is that you might be going through that is leaving you hopeless or feeling despair right now, okay? So be an active listener this morning. Don't don't just listen to a guy up here blabbing. Listen to what the Holy Spirit has uh, for you. So with that, verse 1 of chapter 15. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Go ahead and underline, circle, do something there, highlight that word vain because it's going to come up over and over and over again. And when you see a word in Scripture that is repetitive it means that the Holy Spirit, or God, or whoever who wrote this scripture, that God wanted through this man or, or or through this person who's writing for you to see what He has for you there. Okay, so there's repetition here with vain. It's going to come back over and over again. I forget where I'm at. Verse three: For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. He says, I didn't do the work, it was, it was God doing the work through me, verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I'm going to break this down a little bit, starting in verse 3, okay? He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I think what Paul is saying here is that there are some things that are of lesser significance, than, than other things that are of more importance. There are some truths, there are some things that are, that are spoken that are less significant or less important maybe than, than those uh, of, of, great, of greater significance. That doesn't mean that, that it's not important. It just means that there are some things that we can have open-handed conversations on and there are some things that we just grip so tightly that aren't up for debate. right? And so some of those open-handed conversations are actually some things that we talked about last week. Right? Tony did a great job of walking through um, the gifts of the Spirit uh, in terms of tongues and prophecy. Those are some things that we, we can land in different places and still be within Christian orthodoxy. There, there, there are scenarios in which we can come to different understandings of, of how the gifts are given and who gets what gifts in consideration to how they get played out in the church. Not that we, we, we hold fast it, Everybody gets spiritual gifts who are in Christ, but how they are given to one another and how they're to be expressed inside the church, that's an open-handed conversation that you can land in different places on and still be within Christian orthodoxy. Now, there are some conversations, though, that aren't open for interpretation, that, that are so close-fisted that if we get them wrong, the, whole, the, whole, uh, the rug from, from our Christianity is pulled out from underneath of us and the whole thing comes crashing down. There are some things that are tight-fisted conversations that just aren't up for debate. Jesus, the son of God, that's not an open-handed conversation, that's a closed-fisted conversation, he is the son of God, if we sweep that out, then then our Christianity fails us, it's a not up for debate conversation, Jesus' burial, that's not up for debate, it actually happened, right, and so that's that's a a closed-fisted conversation, Jesus dying for the sin of man, that's not an open-handed conversation. Like, he came and he died, he lived and he died on the cross so that we might be able to have forgiveness of our sin. That is not an open-handed conversation. That's closed-fisted. It's not up for debate. His resurrection, that's not up for debate. That's a closed-fisted conversation. It's not open-handed. It's not up for interpretation. And if we were to to not hold these, these things tight, we would end up walking away from Christian orthodoxy. We end up walking away from a faith that holds us ground into the faith that we've been handed down. And so what Paul is saying, the things that I'm about to let you hear, or the things that I'm about to write you, these are the hills that you would die on. These are the fights that you would have. These are not the things that you just get in, in easy squabbles about. These are the things that if you're going to die on a hill, this is the one that, this is the hill that you're going to take. And if you were to pull them out, everything comes crashing down. So it is of utmost importance that you understand what I'm about to say, is what Paul is saying. He says, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. If you want to know what's important, if, if you want to know what's, what's really mattering, says, Jesus died for our sins. But look how he qualifies this. He says, according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about here? Right? Remember, Paul, Paul's not some, uh, just some chump off of the street. He, he's not some Bush League scholar. This is a guy who says that I am a Jew above all Jews. I am a Pharisee above all Pharisees. I'm a step above when it comes to understanding the scriptures here. He, he, uh, actually, he studied under um, one of the most famous scholars, a guy named Gamaliel. Right? He is above reproach when it comes to understanding the, the scriptures. He's not some scrub off of the street. But he's also, he's not talking about the New Testament passages here because they haven't yet been put together. He's in the course of writing those. The Holy Spirit is, is using him as he writes those letters to be handed down to us later. So he can't be talking about the New Testament passages. He's got to be talking about the scriptures that he's become so aware of that have been pointing to Jesus all along. The Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament law that just kept pointing to the day that there would be a Messiah who would come that would die for the sins of of the world, who would bring hope from, from lost generation to generation to generation to generation. In fact, what he's saying is that Jesus' death wasn't a coincidence, that it didn't just all of a sudden people decide to kill him, that this was something that was planned a long time ago. I want you to write down Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the passages that I think Paul's drawing from when he's talking about according to the, the scriptures. Isaiah 53, is, it's a detailed uh, picture of the Messiah that would come one day, a Messiah who, that the Jews could expect and that the world could expect that when he comes, this is what you should be looking for. And so he starts off, or not starts off, in, in chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 4. He says, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. Now we like sheep have gone astray. We've, we've turned, every one of us, to our, our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so what he's doing, he's laying our sin on the Messiah that was to come. That there would be one who would come, who would take the sin that was, that was due to those who deserved the sin. That he would take it away from us. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Um, You might have a translation there that replaces transgressors with, with the rebels, that he was numbered with the rebels, and I like that translation here, because we were rebels at heart. And yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors, or makes intercession for the rebels, that he became labeled as a rebel so that he might die for the rebellious of heart. What Paul's saying here is that there, what I think think Paul is drawing on in Isaiah is that this was no coincidence that Jesus went to a cross and that Jesus gave up his life, that this has always been God's plan. And, And if we were to put this in theological terms, this is something that we understand as substitutionary atonement. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, um, but it's, it's called substitutionary atonement. It means that Jesus would be the substitution for us sinners, that he would stand in and he would take the wrath of God. See, when, when man sinned, he, he broke the will of God, right? And there was punishment that would come for that sin, and that had to be laid on somebody. And by the very grace of God, he desired not to lay that on us, but to actually lay that on his own son so that he might remove the wrath that was due us on our behalf. And so now if you're in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus for your salvation, Jesus on purpose, like, like on purpose, he, he took your sin away. He was considered a rebel so, so that he might die for your rebellious heart and for my rebellious heart and for the world's rebellious heart. One of the easiest ways I think that I can understand this um, it's like it doesn't make sense to me, right? It's the complete grace and work of God and the love of God that works through his son. And I, I don't understand it, but I think the way that I wrap my mind around this the best is to think about like when I, when I was a kid uh, and like I was naughty, man, and I know that's no, probably no um, surprise to you. My sister was more naughty than I was, okay? <laughs> it's true. Um, but there were times when I would get in trouble and it would be totally my fault, not hers, right? Believe it or not. And, and, I, and, I would, and, and, and I would go and I would get punished. I'd get a spank or I would get grounded from something or grounded what felt like from life for, for, for some time. And the greatest way that I can understand substitutionary atonement is that when I would get in trouble, it would be like, which wouldn't make any sense whatsoever, that I, that I would be in the room, prepping for whatever might be coming, and and then my sister to stand in and say, you know what? I know that he did that. I know that it was his fault, which would be uncommon in and of itself for her to recognize that, but for her to recognize and say, even though he did it, I'm going to take his punishment. It would be so uncanny for her to do that. It would be so unlike her to do that, and she would be taking something that she didn't earn, But yes, she would be standing in on my behalf. That's the easiest way for me to get my mind around that. In a a much grander way, that's exactly what Jesus did. He became a rebel for those who were rebellious at heart. So so that he might take that rebellious heart out and replace it with a heart that beats for him. So that we're no longer rebellious in nature, but so that we might actually be obedient by nature. That our old nature might be gone and we might have a new nature that is no longer disobedient, but a heart that beats for him to be obedient. That's what substitutionary atonement did. That's what it made available to switch our old nature to a new nature. And so Paul says, what is important for you to understand is that he died for our sins according to the scripture. This has always been his plan. And he was buried. And you want to know what else is really important, he says? He was raised on the third day, again, in accordance to the scriptures. But what scriptures is he talking about? I think, again, he's pointing to the fact and the, the reality that this has always been God's plan. There's, there's a unique phrase in Isaiah 53 that we didn't read um, a few minutes ago. It's found in verse 10. And it's always stuck out to me as, as I've read it. And it's, it's this idea that the father took pleasure in his son being crushed. I'm going to read it to you. Verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And some, some of your versions it, it might say it pleased the Lord to crush him. Now, how on earth Could it please God the Father to crush his son? I mean, it seems a little sadistic, doesn't it? To bring pain on somebody, to enjoy the hurt and the pain and the angst that somebody else might feel? I mean, how could a good father actually lay something like that on, on their son? I mean, it does seem sadistic unless you understand what that death actually was going to do and what it meant Here's here's what that death did. That death meant satisfaction of God's wrath that we talked about. It meant payment for sin. It meant a covering for those who believed. It meant salvation for anybody who would come to Jesus and trust in him. But if the resurrection doesn't happen, okay? If the resurrection doesn't happen, then the offering for sin that Isaiah is talking about here, then that means it wasn't accepted, The offering of Jesus laying down, if the resurrection doesn't happen, that offering for sin is null and void. But if the resurrection actually does happen, then the payment for sin was accepted. And guess what happened? The resurrection did happen, and so the payment for sin worked. And when the payment for sin works, that opens up the door for forgiveness for you, for me, anybody who would trust in their life to Jesus. Because the resurrection happened, it proves that the sacrifice of Jesus worked, you know why this is important? Paul says it's important because Jesus died, he was raised, and because he was raised, we're forgiven. The doors for forgiveness, the doors to not walk in shame, the doors to not walk in hopelessness and meaningless, that those doors were open for us. Paul says, I want to tell you another little story. Jesus that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, all, to all the apostles. Why do you think Paul mentions this? Why do you, why do you feel like he goes to this list of names to say that all these people saw Jesus? You know, Ashley and I, uh, this week, we watched uh, um, the, the Prince Harry and, and Meghan uh, Markle uh, interview with Oprah. Did anybody else do that? No? yeah, just a couple people want to admit it. Guys, you know you did. You know some of you did, or you wanted to. Um, no. So Ashley, she, she loves the royal family. Like, she grew up watching the royal family. I think she thought that she was going to marry William one day, and so she kind of got tied in, I'm sorry what you got dealt with. But after watching that interview, maybe it actually is a good thing, right? <clears throat> but one of the things that they said in the interview over and over again uh, was that they, they, they couldn't get away from... The paparazzi, basically. They couldn't get away from being seen all the time. Everywhere they went, there was always somebody, always writing some, sort, some kind of story. Everywhere they went, they, they, were, they were being seen um, by, by others. And I, I thought about that, and, and, and I think that maybe Paul is talking about Jesus in this way of saying that he was showed up in so many different places and he was seen by so many people to validate that this wasn't some type of fairy tale story, that this was something, it wasn't some um, story that was made up overnight by some randos that didn't make sense in any stretch of the imagination. No, there were real people who actually saw Jesus after his resurrection. In fact, Paul says that there were so many people that saw him that you can go and ask them. There are people that are still alive that, that saw the resurrection or that saw the resurrected Jesus, and you can go sit down and you can buy them a cup of coffee and they can tell you about what their experience was. They can, they, can, they can share with you about how glorious he was. That this was real, that it wasn't a made-up fairy tale. I remember uh, growing up in uh, the early 80s, and I'd go to the grocery store, and on the end uh, of every uh, end cap, you know where they have all the tabloids, and uh, who did what, and who wore what, and all that kind of stuff. I remember I would walk it felt like every time that I was in the grocery store, there would always be a, a picture of Elvis Presley, and, and somebody's saying, I saw Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley is alive, which is a big deal, right? Because Elvis was, was dead uh, in, in, in the 80s. And, and, and people would say, well, you know, we, we saw Elvis in Las Vegas. We saw Elvis on the beach. We saw Elvis in California. It is remarkable because all these people desperately wanted to believe that Elvis was still alive. They, or if they just they wanted to make up stories that he was Either either way, Unless he was seen, it couldn't be validated that he was still alive. And I think what Paul is saying here is that Jesus was seen. He sat down and he ate with people. He sat down and he had conversations with people again. And it's not just tabloid propaganda. He's saying the resurrection actually happened. Even more, he says, he also appeared to me. Last of all, as to 1 in verse 8 untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I want you to see the significance of what Paul is saying here. When he says, I'm the least of these, and I was a persecutor, what he's doing is he's recalling his past. See, in Acts chapter 8 and 9, you get this nasty picture of Paul Paul is this nasty dude who is going from house to house he's ripping out men and women he's ripping out um, uh, moms and dads away from the dinner table and away from the family gatherings and he's pulling them out and he's throwing them out in the street and he's taking them off to prison and, and in chapter 9 of Acts 8 or in, in chapter 9 of Acts he, um, he actually has begged the high priest for permission to go in and to rip people out of their homes in Damascus so that he might take them away from their homes all the way back to Jerusalem so that they can be thrown into prison simply for following Jesus. And so he's going to Damascus. He's got letter in hand, smiling ear to ear, waiting for the first person that he's getting ready to throw out and take them to prison. And then something happens along that way. He has an interaction, he has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. The resurrected Jesus, whom he got to see with his own eyes, And Jesus says, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, whoa, well, hold up. Like, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one that you're persecuting. As in, when you ravage the church, you're ravaging me. When you damage the church, you're damaging me. And Paul has this interaction with the resurrected Jesus, and it changes his life. Jesus takes his old rebellious heart out, and he gives him a brand new heart that that beats for him when he sees him with his own eyes look at verse 10 but by the grace of god i am what i am i am what i am he's recalling that god did an amazing work in me he changed me by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace toward me was not in vain there's our word again on the contrary i worked harder than any of them though it was not i but the grace of god that was In me that that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I think what Paul is saying here is that Jesus saved me, and I'm going to proclaim that truth from the top of my lungs. The most important thing that you could hear right now, the most important thing that can make its way from my vocal over my vocal cords and out of my mouth and onto my lips, the most important thing that you could ever hear is that Jesus lives. Is that Jesus is alive, that I've seen him with my own eyes, he's changed me, and he can change you too. And if he lives, that means the hopelessness with which you are living right now, the pain that you are looking at face to face, that thing that feels so crushing on your soul and is weighing you down. He says if Jesus lives, you can come out from underneath of that. You can have hope now in your experience of Christ, and you can have hope for eternity as well because of the resurrection. It gives us hope for the future, and we can look in face-to-face into the stuff that is so crushing. So why is, why is this important, though? Why is Paul saying this? There, there were people who were alive, who were in the church, who were saying that the resurrection from the dead is not possible, that that resurrection, that, that resurrection can't happen, right? Which, in, in general terms, like, I, would, I would agree with that, and logically, that would make sense, right? People don't normally just die, and then all of a sudden start living again, right? That's zombie kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that wakes you up in the middle of the night with cold sweats or your kids come running into your room and say, I've had a nightmare, I've had a nightmare. And you've got to deal, you've got to walk through that. People don't normally just die and start walking again. Unless there's some type of supernatural power that's at work that doesn't resonate with inside of somebody, that resonates outside of them in the person and the power of Jesus. Okay. Resurrection can't happen unless it happens with Jesus. Watch Paul's logic here. Verse 12 Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Another way of saying vain. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Do you follow Paul's logic here? It he says if there's no resurrection from the dead then Christ couldn't have possibly been raised from the dead. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then really the, the sacrifice in which he made that set us free to have forgiveness, then there actually is really no forgiveness of sin. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we're lying. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, we are walking still in sin that we have not yet been forgiven. And so everything else that we put our hands to is just simply a, a, a waste of time. Our preaching's a waste of time. The resurrection doesn't happen our gathering together on Sundays is a waste of time the resurrection doesn't happen if it's not possible and gathering in life groups is it's a waste of time the resurrection doesn't happen and raising our kids to grow up and love Jesus and uh, to live lives that are edifying to the church and edifying to the edifying for the kingdom then that's all for nothing if the resurrection doesn't happen the uh, the pain and the angst that we feel when we're looking death in the face or when we're looking pain in the face or our circumstances or scenarios that just feel so crushing to us if the resurrection doesn't happen those just, those things just bear down there and there is no relief there's no relief now and there's no relief later if the resurrection doesn't happen Paul says we are to be pitied amongst everyone not just pitied amongst ourselves but the world to look at us and to cast down shame on us and, and it, for it to be legitimized because we would be like dogs just simply chasing our tails round and around and around. For when we caught our tail, what do we gain? We catch our tail and then we let go and then we start chasing again. We're just playing games. We're just being entertained with ourselves. Paul says if, it's all, if the resurrection doesn't happen, it's all in vain if Jesus doesn't rise. And the crushing weight that we feel of our circumstances There is no relief. Paul uses the word vain here. It's this uh, Greek word that means intellectually, morally, or spiritually pointless. If there's no resurrection, Paul is saying we we have zero intellectual integrity. Look at verse 15. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And so if the resurrection doesn't happen, then we have no intellectual grounds to stand on if we tell somebody that it did happen. We are actually lying about God. And so our intellectual conversations are, are just moot at that point. We're left without any moral authority. If the resurrection doesn't happen, then we just end up doing whatever it is that we want to do and with, 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 with no um, qualms about it. If the resurrection doesn't happen, then we're left without any spiritual hope as well. Paul says we are to be pitied. It's a sham. all goes up in smoke. It's a house of cards. If there's no resurrection. See, our salvation and our hope depend on the resurrection being true. If it isn't true, we're just wasting our time. But if the resurrection is true. There is nothing more valuable that we could spend our time talking about. If the resurrection is true, there is no greater words that could ever come off of our lips than that Jesus lives. There's no greater hope that we have to offer our own lives and to the lives of those who are around us that are going through things as well, if there is no resurrection. like The greatest thing that could ever come from our mouth is that the resurrection is true, Christ died for our sins, the resurrection proves it, and it brings hope to your circumstance and your scenario. There's nothing better than that we could talk about. And so the fact that Paul says that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the Scriptures... And that people have seen him and you can go sit down and you can have coffee with them and talk about the resurrected Jesus. The fact that he highlights these things, it all validated the fact that their hope, their hope for life and their hope for a life after is not in vain. That Jesus was raised and if he was raised then their sins can be forgiven. And one day just as he's raised, one day they'll be able to rise alongside of him too. Because if Jesus was raised, that opens the door for resurrection for others. If he raised, we'll raise as well. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Firstfruits here just means that Jesus was the first one to be raised. And if he was the first one, that means there's going to be others to come along as well. There were going to be others in Corinth who would raise one day. There are others in Asia that would raise one day. There are others in this room that will raise one day. Others throughout Ashland that will raise one day. If Jesus was raised, that brings hope of resurrection for all of us to enter into eternity, to be with the Lord uh, forever. But if we were to rip chapter 15 out of 1 Corinthians, if we were to take it out, then we are to be pitied amongst all. If we were to take the events out that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, we have no hope. We, we are misleading ourselves and misleading others if we follow this line of hope. <laughs> But if we leave chapter 15 in, then there's hope in our circumstances. We can look death face to face. We can look those things that are crushing down on of us face to face. And we don't have to lose hope. It doesn't mean that it becomes easy. I, I, got, a, I got a message, God bless her, from Dee um, uh, during uh, the break between first and second service. And she was listening to the first service. And uh, she sent me a message. And uh, if you know Dee, Dee's uh, walking through cancer treatments right now, and um, very much going through what we're talking about here. And she said, man, this passage is so good. I wish I would have brought my phone up here and I I'd read it to you. But she was just saying this passage is so right on because if the resurrection doesn't happen, there's no hope for her. But because of the resurrection, she can face what she's going through right now, not in pain and angst, but in hope that Jesus is walking through it with her, that he went through his own pain and struggle, and that one day that's going to be gone. If we take out chapter 15, where's our hope, right? If we take out the events of chapter 15, where's our hope in in this? So so what do we do with that, right? So what, like what does this change for us? Because of the resurrection, we can come face to face with pain and death in somewhat crushing circumstances and not be overwhelmed by fear. We can live in hope for today and tomorrow because we know that this life isn't the end, that there's more to come than this. And so we as believers, we have a living hope that this world isn't the end, and because we know it's not the end, then we proclaim Christ's death over and over and over again. We proclaim his resurrection over and over and over again, and the power of his resurrection over our lives every single day, over and over. When we forget and pain and loss are leading us to a place of hopelessness, we remind ourselves, we preach the gospel to ourselves. I haven't believed in vain. My hope is not futile. I'm not hanging on to just nothing. He was buried. He was raised. His resurrection secures not only my life with Him now, but His resurrection secures my life with Him on into eternity as well. I will be with Him. And so when we're facing these things, this truth reminds us that we don't go into it hopelessly, and so we preach it over and over and over to ourselves. And because we know that this life isn't the end, that there's a resurrection to come, we preach this truth to our friends, to our family members, to our loved ones, to our co-workers, the greatest words that could ever come off of our lips to somebody in our circle is that Jesus lives and there's hope in that. We preach it to our enemies. We preach it to anybody uh, around us as well because we know that there's a day where Jesus is going to come back and we're going to raise to be with him, but we also preach it to those who are around us because we know that there's a day This is those who are in Christ who are going to raise to be with him. There's a day coming where we'll all be raised, not just believers to life, but non-believers raised to an eternal death where they're separated from Jesus forever. And so the truth that gives us such hope as believers is the truth that is damning on the other side unless they come to know who Jesus is. And so that should put a fire inside of us. To get the words off of our lips, out of our mouth, into the lives of somebody else to know that there's hope in Jesus. There's hope in Jesus. So I want to ask you if if you'd close your eyes um, just for a minute. And I I just want to talk to, um, or maybe, I don't want, yeah, I just want you to give maybe a moment for the Spirit to speak um, to you. Um, Just you personally, not just hearing a message. Because I know that there are, we've got brothers and sisters in the room who have trusted Jesus. And your hope is secure, And although it might get wonky from time to time, and you might track weeds or go down the path of the weeds and the what-ifs and whatnot. and You can maybe in moments forget about the hope that you have. You have the security to come back to who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. And so I want to encourage you as believers to know that you know that you know that there's hope because of the resurrection. And so whatever it is that you may be walking through right now, you're not walking through it alone, you're walking through it in hope. And so if you're feeling alone, preach the gospel to yourself. Be reminded of this truth. Get brothers and sisters around you to help remind you of that truth as well. And I pray that you would understand the call of the gospel and the power of the resurrection in the lives of people who don't yet know Jesus. And that you would utter the words that bring life To others, You don't bring the life, but the Spirit through you brings the life. You would share that truth with others. I know that there's a room this size, there are people in here who haven't yet trusted Jesus. And so the hope that we talk about in the face of trouble is not yet your experience. The resurrected life of Jesus has not become the resurrected life that you've trusted in and believed. And so the very real reality for you is that where... The other side has hope. There's fear that sits there and it's a righteous fear. It's not something to be trifled with. But Jesus came. He died. He gave up his life. He was raised from the dead so that he might give you life and so that maybe today might be a day where you just say, you know what, I'm I'm tired of running. I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of what's to come. I just want to trust Jesus and I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm just going to lay down my life. I'm going to say, you know what, today is the day. Jesus, I trust you. I trust you to come in and do some work that I've been trying to do myself. I'm not going to live in fear anymore. And so, Father, we give you this morning. Holy Spirit, do your work. I can talk up here, but you apply your truth. You speak to us. You do a work that we, could only, we can't even imagine. So, Holy Spirit, do your saving work this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.